Six years ago, the New York Times ran an article entitled, When Some Turn to Church, Others Go to CrossFit, which discussed researchers' attempts to pinpoint what constitutes religiosity in America. So, for instance, tracing the behaviors of a 27-year-old Harvard Business School student, they learned she arose at 4.45 every morning to go to a CrossFit gym. When she and her boyfriend, whom she met through CrossFit, went apartment hunting, they chose a neighborhood near their gym. CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community, she told researchers. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it. As the article suggested, it's surprisingly hard to say what makes a religion. They pointed out this young woman spoke about her gym experience as some might speak about a church community. And Greg Glassman, the CrossFit founder, spoke at an event sponsored by students of Harvard Divinity School entitled CrossFit as Church. At the time, Glassman exclaimed, we're saving lives. 350,000 Americans are going to die next year from sitting on the couch. That's dangerous. Squatting isn't. <laughs> the article also referenced other sorts of interest constellations like passionate fans of Star Trek and Star Wars and, and football. Scholars note that football brings people together in large crowds to, quote, worship, unquote, <clears throat> and has a weekly holy day and even annual holidays like NFL Draft Day and, of course, the equivalent of Easter, the Super Bowl. Back then, I found the article sad. And that's not because I'm against gyms and football, but the very easy way people can fill the space of meaning-making with puny-scale distractions. Of course, even Christians can dumb down their faith and do a kind of therapeutic, motivational project for personal success and happiness. And I'm not against success and happiness either. But I don't think they frame out the meaning of deep, robust faith in a creating God of astonishing love and grace. But, but now, over the intervening years, CrossFit has not fared too well challenging those that had compared it to a religion. As discussed in a New Yorker article this past July, pandemic was not kind to its business. But more than that, founder Glassman was buried under an avalanche of accusations of racism and sexual harassment. The pandemic exposed flaws in the business plan. Societal turmoil exposed flaws in the leadership and the allegations proved that when Glassman needed the benefit of the doubt, it was no longer available. The math didn't work, and he was forced to sell the company. Often, I'm in the position of speaking with people who, who are in some deep distress about important matters in their lives, trying to make sense and find hope. I'm confident the gym or stadium doesn't hold the sustained answer to their conundrum. As I've pointed out before, it was not lost to me that post 9-11, Christ Church was filled to overflowing, as were many other houses of worship, despite our culture's relentless drift into secular diversions. 
And one of the reasons so many people showed up for so many worship services for so many days was to fill a void of the language of meaning-making. Popular culture lacks an adequate vocabulary to express the size of our human experience. Doing squats isn't up to the challenge. So, having no words of their own, hearing no words large enough in media, many sought out those places that might have at least some words that could give expression to their anguish and battered hope. So, we relied on the ancient poetry of Psalms, the proclamation of prophets, and the testimony of disciples to give voice to the groans of our souls. And my, how we groaned. Many stepped into a church for the first time in a long time and found a word or two that spoke for them. It didn't last because, well, because disciplined spiritual practice is a kind of work requiring intentional time and energy, like anything profoundly important. And there's a countervailing movement today into banal distractions as we've discussed many, many times before. The biblical message was written by and for people at a time of profound need and vulnerability. That yawning vulnerability was briefly revealed to New Yorkers 21 years ago, and they showed up in church at a remarkable rate. Consider this. It's no accident that Martin Luther King Jr. found the cues for his justice-seeking in the ancient prophets. When he said he had a dream that one day this nation would rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. That didn't, couldn't have emerged from a health club or the chant of a cheering squad or the tidal force of an Instagram or TikTok feed. It emerged from the heart of a deeply aggrieved people who loved a God who meant to bring their redemption. King said this was the ground of his hope. This hope was a spiritual gift that flew in the face of his present circumstance. I've had my own discovery process about this hope over the years, I came to know and experience God's intimate presence, especially in the bad times. As though the power that had flung the stars into distant space was present and powerful in a surprisingly personal manner while holding the ramparts in place. I came to trust this for certain. It's in with, within this tradition and community, I have found the words and the faith that are large enough to hold the mystery of being born and having to die, and the requirements for reflecting God's love and justice in the days we have. In today's gospel, Jesus looked into the sky and experienced the future, perhaps his own, with a sense of foreboding. 
This passage comes just a few verses before his final Passover celebration and arrest. He was a man in extremis. That's the Latin phrase for being in extreme circumstance, especially at the point of death. He was in extremis for certain. Still, for all of the apocalyptic prediction, all the roaring of the sea and the distress among the nations, the shaking of the heavens, he says to stand and raise your heads because redemption is drawing near. Which sounds like a proclamation of hope, both frightening and exhilarating. The Jews of Jesus' day lived in dangerous times. Just a few decades forward, their capital city will be sacked and their temple torn down. We know how the Romans dealt with perceived political threats by what happened to Jesus. It's hard to place ourselves in their shoes, but a lot of the religion thing comes down to how we perceive our situation. From the Roman side of things, Jesus was a disruptor who needed to be silenced for the sake of stability and order. From the Jewish side of things, the sky was falling. Consider how differently you might read the situation of refugees if you were one of them. Placing myself in their shoes, I might think the sky was falling all around. Then again, from the place of power and privilege, I might think borders need to be secure so that my life can stay on track, that on track, the one I've concocted for myself, let others be damned, and the gym will do quite nicely as my temple of meaning-making. Now, who do you think would have a more accurate take on what Jesus meant when he told his friends to Stand and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus identified with the vulnerable. That's a simple, irrefutable fact. That was the location for his meaning making, which provides a more accurate context for assessing our larger situation. Humble acceptance of our vulnerability is our religious project at Christ Church. Granted, this is counter to secular fashion. But there generally comes a time when we're presented with an opportunity to recognize the truth of it and discover we could use a bit of hope for what lies ahead. How can we be hopeful when the sky seems to be falling? It comes with the knowledge and acceptance that God looms larger than the sky with all of its planets and stars, and that God intends for life and love and justice to prevail above all else, even my life and your life. We go so far as to say that we shall prevail even after our last breath has been spent. That's the language of faith we share here. Life and love and justice triumphing. Hope knows the deep truth here. Robust hope is not undone by suffering. In part, that's the anvil upon which authentic hope is forged. 
It has no truck with sentimental philosophies or overrated fantasies about our God-like abilities for mastering the physical world. This hope is a gift from the well of our vulnerability and lies close to the heart of abundant life. They go together, hope and life, life and hope. Their dance animates our worship, inspires our musicians, fuels our passions, and prompts our desire to grow into that better version of ourselves, lurking behind the facade of the person we currently present to the world. Stand and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near.